Welcome to Boomeranging, from expat to repat, a podcast that explores the question, what could be so hard about returning home after years living overseas? I'm your host, Margot Anderson, and in each episode, I will sit down with a former Aussie expat to discuss how they survived repatriation and reverse culture shock, how they navigated the logistics of careers, friends, and family to successfully find their new place at home, and all without losing their global spirit. If you have just returned home, are thinking about it, or just love a good yarn told by professional globetrotters, then I have no doubt you'll enjoy meeting this diverse group of Australians. And that was The Sweet Sound of Freedom, recorded by Michael Ellis on the dawn of the day of his release from quarantine after escaping COVID-ridden London in February earlier this year. Michael had lived in London for the last 19 years and prior to the pandemic had no plans to move. But like many Australians, when the opportunity to come home to visit family and friends was taken away and when the length of time away from home got longer and longer, plans and perspectives change. After spending a London lockdown living on his own, Michael jumped at the chance in January to take a DFAT repatriation flight home. In just two weeks, he was back on Australian soil and quarantining in Howard Springs. After two weeks of waking up to the sounds of the Bushstone curlew, he drove from Darwin to Melbourne to enjoy what he describes as an overwhelming sense of freedom. I'm curious to talk to Michael about the influence the pandemic has had over his plans, both now and for the future, as he adjusts to a life he didn't quite plan for. So welcome, Michael. Thank you. Very good to be here. Yeah, wonderful to have you. Where are we chatting with you today? Um, I'm in the Lego building in St Kilda, St Kilda Junction. Uh, I managed to get myself a short-term rental there on something that was... uh, an Airbnb, but there's no one airbnb these days, so uh, about a nice soft landing in Melbourne. Yeah, fabulous. And so given that we are, I guess, in the midst of another lockdown, um, it's really work from home scenario, isn't it? So That's why I picked a north-facing balcony. Yeah, I'm, I'm prepared. <laughs> Excellent. So you have lived overseas for some time. You departed in 2001. Can you take us back to that year and what you were doing and what prompted the move overseas? Um, You know, I was at that point in my life, I'd saved up enough money for a deposit for a house. And what do I do? Do I go and buy a house and have a mortgage and then predetermined plan laid out for me? Um, But friends of mine were getting married in The Hague and I felt that was a good opportunity to go and see them. So I thought I'd go and see London for a year or two and try and work out and find out what that was like. Yeah, so like many Aussies, a year or two, that good old working holiday visa, and then many, many years later, uh, it's a different story, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, no, I was sponsored for work when I um, when I got there, so um, uh, so I wasn't quite on the work working holiday visa, um, but uh, no, it's yeah, I certainly uh, ended up staying a little bit longer than I expected. I mean, it was a long path towards highly skilled migrant visa. Uh, and um, and then, then self-employment and the career development that I managed to get from self-employment, picking my own contracts and, and finding the work myself, yeah. Can you share with us what it is that you do, so what you were contracting in? 
So um, I'm a technical consultant. I specialize in data migration. That's usually for business acquisitions or mergers um, or divestitures and also data warehouse development, business reporting, that sort of thing. So bringing a lot of technical skill uh, and marrying that up with the business requirements. And I guess being in a place like London, which really is a big central hub, how did, I guess, the journey unfold for you from, you know, highly skilled migrant through to self-employment? Yeah, I I started off working for a small consultancy for about four years um, and then moved to highly skilled migrant and started engaging clients on my own. And then I got uh, a nice, nice big break working on a a transformation program for uh, a supermarket chain over there. Uh, and that really opened up of what a transformation program looks like for a business uh, and the various different data migrations that I was involved during that. And then after that, um, refining my skills, finding better tools to do what I'd already done before in a better way and applying them to new engagements as I went forward, yeah. Yeah, fabulous. So so clearly some great opportunities um, in the market over there. But, you know, like for many of us, career is certainly often the starting point for staying. But 19 years is a long time. So what, what were the other motivations for staying? Well, absolutely. Well, first of all, you know, to pack up and go after two years would have seemed like a big waste of the last two years. So after that first two years progressed, I thought, oh, I'll give it another two years And then after that, you know, all the effort that it's a lot of things, a lot of effort to move, move country, make friends, establish yourself. I mean, the English don't actually trust you until you say you've been there at least six years. But after (laughs) reviewing my situation, they think you're a flight risk. They think you're going to leave, which ultimately I did, but it was much later. But um, yeah, I stopped counting after six years and I invested and I'd made, you know, roots there and strong friendships and everything like that. So I decided that, uh, yeah, I didn't make a decision. I just kept going with the same momentum. And I think we stopped putting the parameters of the next two years, don't we, around it? You know, I think, um, I know I certainly did that. And I think family and friends were like, another two years, I don't really believe this. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess there is that feeling that you really are at the centre, you know, work-wise and lifestyle-wise. Yeah. Mm, and the centre of the world, living in London. I mean, there's something big going on in the world, you know, there it is. And there's uh, yeah. lots, of, lots of big businesses, lots of interesting going on. It certainly opened up my eyes to uh, a lot of different cultures, um, you know, all sorts of wonderful things that, that Europe has to offer, whether it's, you know, drinking espresso martinis on a pooled side in Mykonos or, you know, Siri you're doing karaoke at Monster Ronson's in Berlin or skiing in the French Alps, all those things, yeah. Yeah, amazing, amazing. And just so easy to access. I think it's that ease, isn't it? You know, it's, Totally. Um, yeah, yeah. So before deciding to return, how often did you actually come home and how did you maintain your network in Australia? Because I know that was something that was really important to you. De- definitely, you know, over the past seven years. I've come back at least once a year before that. I mean, my my parents are getting uh, a little bit older and uh, they're less able to travel than they were, um, particularly for the past, you know, seven years. So, I was definitely coming back once a year minimum, uh, aside from the odd family uh, emergency. So, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely coming back and spending a lot of time with with the the friendship network that I'd already had established and, and was maintaining I was very conscious that uh, of maintaining uh, my uh, 
circle of friends there, as well as the wonderful set that I have in London as well. Can I ask, did you did you do that with your professional networks as well as your personal networks? Uh, I still, I've, I've got close personal friends that are colleagues, but I must say I was pretty much in holiday mode when I was over here and I wasn't drumming up that much business and I wasn't really looking... I mean, I, I'd always had the idea that I wanted to live in both cities, but the, the time difference between London and Melbourne is a bit prohibitive for the sort of work that I do. You're going to be working antisocial if you've got an engagement on the other time zone. Yeah. I think there's been quite a number of people that have come back um, during COVID and, and kept their role, um, but they've been brought back to, to sort of be based here. And it's the time zones that are a killer. You know, if you're reporting into a US time zone or a London time zone, it can be really prohibitive to life. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So often one of the things that allows us to stay overseas for so long is the knowledge and confidence that we can always come home, I guess, so easily and freely. Now, the pandemic has really changed that sense of confidence for so many Aussies. What did it feel like when you were in the UK with no sense of when you might come home? Mm, Well, I mean, I guess I always had a sense that I would come home at some stage. I mean, I, I was deliberately living a temporary uh, existence in London. I wasn't, you know, having any pets or any serious relationships and um, keeping myself pretty portable so that I was able to move. I mean, for me and all my members of my families, it's, it's in our nature to have pets, cats or dogs or whatever, or multiple of that. And living without that for uh, eight years or so uh, was a choice, yeah, not one that I really wanted yeah. to make. So, yeah, I guess I always did know that at some stage I would come back. So you sort of built a, f- a flexible or a f- an element of flexibility, I guess, to make that easy, yeah? Yes, I think I think so. I mean, I've got other friends that are living in London and they'd like to be coming back to, to Melbourne now, but they've got pets that can't travel, you know, and it's a, it's a different thing. Yeah. I mean, one of the really interesting things on cost, I mean, for many, the cost of getting home is just so extraordinary, but the cost of moving pets is is outrageous at the moment. So, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not the kindest thing to do either. I understand that people have to, but, you know, the thought of uh, locking a, a pet away from quarantine for some period of time, I mean, well, two weeks of quarantine for me, I can't imagine what it would be like for uh, a dog. Or a cat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. So what, what, I guess, was the catalyst for you or the last straw that made you think, okay, I'm going to look into a repatriation flight home? My contract was coming to an end in December and, you know, the, the, the news wasn't good in London. Um, you know, uh, it wasn't getting better. You could see a government that was mismanaging the pandemic and I didn't didn't like working from home. I feel that a lot of my skills aren't utilised unless I'm client-facing, um, you know, in the same room as. Uh, and it was cold. You could only meet people outside and it was very, very cold. And it was also very conscious that, you know, uh, I wasn't there with my family, you know, uh, and not knowing how long it would take or when I could go. I mean, the aim, ultimate aim was to be here for my father's 80th birthday uh, um, on the 2nd of April. Right. So I definitely had that in mind. But I knew it wasn't going to be. It wasn't going to be a little little trip. No, when I when I when I started to when I got the offer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, look. You know. I mean. I think anywhere like London can be grim in winter. It's very damp and cold. And I, I throw in a lockdown, and there's a lot of reflective time there. So I think a lot of people have really spent the time thinking. Okay. Well, what are our priorities? Um, <laughs> Indeed. 
Yeah. So you returned on a repatriation flight, which is, um, I understand, a very different process and experience to those who have independently organised flights. Um, we've had some guests on the podcast prior who've, you know, talked about the challenges of cancelled flights and, you know, really protracted timeframes and, you know, visa cards going through the roof. Um, yours was really, really different to that. Can you share with us what um, that process was and the timeline? So keeping in mind, like, uh, um, you know, in November, I could see lockdown happening and December, I was calling up Qantas and saying, you know, uh, mm. can I fly back to Australia? So we're not operating any flights. There were a very frustrated woman who finally said, go to the DFAT, uh, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, go to that website and apply there. And that is what I did. I went on and filled out their web form and said to, said to DFAT, I would like to come home, please. And they uh, replied with an offer um, in middle of January. And at that time, you know, London was, rec- I mean, UK was recording 1,800 deaths a day. It was pretty grim there. It was dark, it was yeah. cold, yeah. Uh, and, and I was very angry with the government for the way they had mismanaged the, the, the pandemic there, totally. Um, and so, yeah, then I got offered a, a single flight that went straight from London to Darwin. So there was no stopover. Um, it, yeah, no stopover at all. That's a long flight. That's all right. No, it's actually, you know, it's 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 better than uh, having a stopover. I've been used to going to uh, Melbourne via Perth with that long, long, long um, stretch there. And, you know, you don't really notice it. I mean, uh, you know, the meals are the punctuation of the flight and, you know, the time is actually irrelevant. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it was a government-operated flight. It might have had enough Qantas stuff on there to arm the doors and cross-check. But it was definitely government-provided uh, food, government-staffed service. It wasn't <laughs> Qantas in-flight entertainment. And the entire in-flight entertainment system, uh, they showed three flights, for the, three movies for the duration of the flight. But it was like it was the, you know, 90s where everyone was watching the same film at the same time. But yeah, all, yeah. All, albeit on your little little screens, but still. Yeah, and anyway, none of that mattered. It was all, everyone was so happy to be on that flight. No one uttered a word. It was a dry flight. There was no alcohol. Everything was disposable, plastic. <laughs> I mean, like the people were dressed head to toe in plastic, yeah, covered up. It was quite funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I can imagine that there would have been a sense of euphoria then when you touched down. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Arriving in, in, uh, Darwin Airport. But instead of going out the uh, international side, you went out the military side uh, and went out the military exit. And that's where they performed their their checks once you got on there. So, yeah, the first tests when you got on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. How did you find quarantine? Yeah. I mean, you know, um, uh, I mean, it was it was a little bit frustrating because you're, you're stuck there, but you know, there's ultimately a goal of, of, of getting out. I guess it was a lot better in retrospect to to what people have been going through in in hotel quarantines. In fact, I'm, I'm members of the hotel quarantine group in Facebook and the uh, Howard Springs um, quarantine, and you know they're different stories. Um, I, I mean, it's good. I don't know anyone who would actually want to go through quarantine. That was the best way to do it. You know, it, it really was. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So when we first connected, you were actually in quarantine. I was, yeah. 
you know, it was you were coming towards the end, and you were talking. We were talking about what you were going to do when you um, when you came out, um, and you were planning a trip at that time. I think from Melbourne to Darwin, which is quite a quite a road trip. I think it's three and a half thousand plus kilometers. You know, thirty eight hour drive if you do it straight through. I mean, it must have been an incredible way to re-enter life in Australia. Can you share with us what you did for those first few weeks? Sure, sure. I, I hadn't ever been to Darwin before and I couldn't stand the thought of just going there and then going directly to Melbourne. But also at that time, about the 14th of February, Melbourne was in lockdown anyway. And I definitely yeah. wanted to, yeah, I de- there's all these things, amazing things that I wanted to, to see. And it wasn't possible to, to hire a car to pick it up in Darwin and drop it off in Melbourne. There's, the higher cars, uh, higher places weren't simply offering that. So um, after doing a tour of Litchfield National Park with my quarantine neighbour, um, I then spent about a week and a half or um, a week and a half or so in Darwin trying to buy a car, a cheap car, but I just needed it to be comfortable. That would fulfil the journey. Um, and, uh, you know, got to saw Darwin, find out a lot about the history of Darwin, particularly, uh, the, you know, the bombings that happened there during the Second World War and then getting in the car that I'd just purchased and uh, and driving to, you know, Kakadu. And then, um, I mean, it had been torrential rain. It's wet season. It's not the ideal time that you do it. Uh, and there's no, 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 you can't drive on the normal track. So, you know, I got in a plane um, with everyone else that was on there and did a, a, a airplane tour of, of all the Jim Jim Falls and all the waterfalls there. And everyone's Beautiful. got photos of... Uh, of water coming over those falls, but none of them are as big as as big as the volume of water going over as yeah. Yeah, um, as when I went. It was quite quite spectacular. And then um, and then uh, down to Catherine and uh, Nipmaluk National Park, and of course did a powerboat ride up up the Catherine River, which uh, Catherine Gorge, which you could do a lot more of. Amazing. Uh, yeah, and then you know everywhere Dally Waters, and then on to um, uh, Kakadu, and then to Cuba PD, and then Barossa Valley, and then sort of ending up in Dalesford, oh, meeting nice. a bunch of friends there. So yeah, it was a it was a lovely long journey. Yeah, yeah, I think in in many ways it sounds almost ideal, doesn't it? Like in terms of reentry, I mean, total guilty pleasure. Everyone else was in <laughs> lockdown, particularly in London, and there I was, you know, parading across Australia. Yeah, from the from the north to the, right down the middle, and and it was green the whole way. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. So, what were your um, some of your immediate impressions of being back home? Um, what struck you the most, or the things that you found quintessentially Australian? I guess. Oh, it was great to be in a country where everyone says the word data correctly. I mean, uh, that's been that's my one thing, one, one <laughs> word that I haven't uh, managed to. <laughs> I didn't let them uh, translate. Uh, you know, you know, everything's so convenient here. Everything works. It's very clean. You know, do feel slightly that you are on the other side of the world, but it's really nice to be, you know, close to family and close to friends. Um, but yeah, clean, neat, functional, convenient. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Actually, the cleanliness is something that really struck me as well. I mean, uh, you know, amongst the incredible mm. light um, and the blue sky, but the cleanliness was um, was definitely something that stood out. So, Absolutely. Yeah. I am really conscious that you've been back for what, just a little over three months. Um, so things are still relatively new, but how are you finding this time? You know, normally I'm just here, you know, visit 
uh, Australia, you know, and have a good time. But there was, you know, things that I had to do, like find a place to live uh, and find a job, which yep. I, I managed to do both of those things. Um, so, uh, you know, and also, you know, reconnecting with old friends and, and, and making new friends along the way too. I mean, that's, that's important. Uh, it's been good. It's been good. I, I'm, you know, probably not living in the place that I want to live forever, and I probably haven't got the role that I see myself in a, in, in a dream role, but it's definitely a, a good start. Yeah, definitely a good start. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it is, it's, sometimes it is an interim step before the, you know, the next longer-term piece yeah. kicks in. So I'm interested um, in, in light of the work transition. Um, so you, you said earlier that you work in the, in the area of IT, sort of ERP systems, um, implementation and data analysis. When you left Australia, you'd had a couple of years of local experience, but the bulk of your career was actually built in the UK. What's the local response been here to your experience abroad? Well, it t- turns out that they're, they're crying out for people specifically with my skills and skills that I wouldn't have acquired probably um, if I was in mm-hmm. um, if I was in Australia. I mean, uh, th- there was there's certainly a need. They just don't pay as much for it. I, I don't know if that sounds yeah. I mean, like cost of living is quite a bit higher here. The tax rates are higher, but there's certainly the work there and um, and the technical challenges which I didn't think there there would be. So uh, I found found it to be quite good. Yeah, good. And the process of actually securing the role, was that through recruitment or online or, you know, networks? How did that unfold? Well, I mean, really, it was like, um, you know, through job boards, um, job boards, which I don't think is the, quite the way to mm-hmm. do it. I don't have the, the network. I mean, I think in Australia, because it's a smaller market, it's dependent on mm-hmm. your, your network and the people that you know. It seems that the roles that are more in line with what I'd like to be doing, you make through connections rather than applying once it's got to a job board it's not really the role that you're that, you, that you're, you're chasing exactly exactly but you know you've got to start somewhere yep. uh, and you've got to build those networks and then i'm sure the uh, the right role will come along soon yeah and and i do often hear um especially in the world of it contracting and consulting the market and the attitude towards contracting like career the decision to be a career contractor or a career consultant in that space is quite different I'm not sure whether or not that's something you've experienced yet or have you heard um people talk to oh it's the way the jobs are advertised like they they won't put a um a rate there and they'll say oh look this is a wonderful place you should come and work for us and list all these great things about the company and then when you apply mm. um you you know you say oh, i want this rate they said well we're not going to pay you that um and they go yeah. it's, it's, but uh, you know i've become you know quite mercenary i guess um being you know you know, 17 years independent consultancy, you know, working for myself, self-employed, but it doesn't seem that there is the appetite. Maybe there is a market for independent consulting, but you're not going to access it through the job boards. Yeah. Um, there, I think there is uh, I think there, there, there is a way and it's going to be th- through a smaller marketplace. It is going to be through people that you know and, and word of mouth rather than things that are being advertised. And so, yeah, uh, yeah. I think, uh, of course, there isn't as many big businesses as there are in the UK. There isn't as many heads, you know, head offices, but there's still plenty of work to do. Great, because I think, look, I mean, the reality is, is that the market is what it is. I mean, it is significantly smaller than the UK. We can't change Mm -hmm. that. We just have to learn how to navigate it. Um, And yeah, I mean, I think networks are absolutely key to that. 
Um, mm. You still do actually have significant opportunities available to you in your area of work in the UK. And I guess coupled with the fact that you've got the right to return with your passport status, what do you think it would take for Australia to make sure that it keeps you here? Oh, well, not being in lockdown would be would be a start. <laughs> <laughs> I know, especially as the UK seems to have done so well on the vaccination yeah. rollout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where well, they didn't manage to vaccinate aged care in the time they had so I much know. time available to do I it. Anyway, um, I, I, I don't know. Um, what will it take to keep me here? Um, I, 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 maybe that decision isn't related to work. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I could go back. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I just need to take some more time to think about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. to think about that. But it, it's certainly if we if Melbourne ends up in perpetual lockdown for the next three months, I won't be staying. No. No, no, no. And so the UK then obviously still has a strong pull for you. I mean, you've got good networks there. Absolutely. Yeah, so many, so many friends that I miss terribly. And I think, you know, we often hear, certainly for the first 12 months, often for the first two years, you do feel, even if you've made the decision to come home and you've owned that decision yourself, you still do have this strong link um, and pull back to the country that you've been in because it's still so fresh. <laughs> it's so easy. Mm. You think it'd be so easy to get off the plane. doesn't mean it will be, but there is a sense that it would be, so... Yeah, maybe once we're all vaccinated, we'll all be travelling just as much as we used to. But uh, yeah. for the time being, that does not seem to be the case. No, no. So for many expats who have been away for the length of time that you have, there is an often the desire to live part of the year here and part of the year up there. Now, you indicated earlier that, you know, time zones are a little bit prohibitive to that. Um, if you could build up your contracting network here, do you think the temptation would be to sort of suss out where they are locally and, and live between countries? Or are you sort of somebody who thinks that, no, I'd have to be based somewhere? Um, I could live between countries. That's certainly possible. <laughs> I think you. I think you. You tipped on it when you said uh, that that the time time differences in Asia are, are are certainly more more prohibitive. There's other places in the world that I can work that I don't actually have to be there for. Yeah. Um, and that's a, that's that's of interest. So you know, maybe finding the right time zone to work with uh, would be the key. But yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Oh, look, I really appreciate your insights because, you know, it's so, it is so fresh for you now. It's, it's three months in and like for some people or for many people um, that we've spoken with, they've been quite reflective with that gap between. So um, I appreciate that for many um, of these, th these sorts of considerations, they're, they're still a work in progress. So, um, so yeah, thank you. Absolutely. I'm not committing, not committing to anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. Are you, are you getting a pet here? Uh, well, that's a bigger question, not one uh, that I can answer right now. <laughs> certainly not, not, certainly not in this apartment just yet. No. So we uh, we do like to close all of our, our conversations with five quick questions, um, and so I'm going to put those to you now. Living overseas opened my eyes to true multiculturalism, like particularly in London, people living in their own cultures, not not some not so homogenised and also all the, all the wonderful, really old cultures right throughout Europe. Fantastic. Yeah, Love it. beautiful. Expats are good for? Oh, I think they're good for breaking the mould. I don't know. I think uh, we've got a lot of experience to bring and either the experience in work culture that, that you can bring back to Australia from another way, different methods. 
Yeah, and I think our very wiring is is that we've broken the mould for ourselves by going overseas mm-hmm. in the first mm-hmm. place. Um, we look to do it a little bit more, don't we? So when we come back. Um, mm-hmm. The best thing I've discovered since arriving home is? A, a very convenient life, you know, and very everything, as you mentioned before, clean and neat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, Melbourne's been treating me very well. It's a very, very nice place to very nice place to be indeed, yeah. To return. Excellent. The first thing I'd encourage a new repat to do is? Have a big party and invite everyone, you know, make sure you can yeah, <laughs> reconnect with people that way. I, I think you should, uh, yeah, yeah, reach out and, you know, celebrate what you've got, yeah. Yeah. Now, I know this last question um, we spoke about, um, a word, song or quote that best describes your time overseas. It wasn't so much one but more like a playlist. Ah. So um, can you share with us what, what would be on that playlist? Oh, I don't know. You do, do have sort of like theme tunes running through your mind. I guess when I first left, uh, what was going through my head was Corner of the Sky out of Pippin, I guess. That was one thing yeah. I played that in, in a band and that was in my head. Yeah, okay. Uh, and the lyrics resonated, but then, of course, you know, you know, towards the end, I was feeling a bit um, Jerry Rafferty, Baker Street, uh, definitely towards the end. Okay. And then, uh, and then, while I was in quarantine, or or maybe the last few weeks in London, I was, uh, I wish I knew how it would be to be free, Nina Simone. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But now it's a little bit ironic, Alanis Morissette. Yeah. <laughs> Great, great. <laughs> oh, look, you've been uh, you've been really generous with your time, and I've loved our chat. So, thank you, Michael, and uh, good luck with the not just the next three months, but you know the journey home. Thank you, Margot. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review, share it with your friends and family, and subscribe for future episodes. For more information on our guests, please head to our website, InSyncNetworkGroup.com where you can check out the show notes and also find more information about our fabulous community and membership offerings.